The funny thing about reading body language and facial expressions is that it isn't so much about observing as it is about learning how to engage. This is my conversation with Alan Stevens. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. Alan Stevens is an international profiling and communications specialist. He's worked with corporations such as Gillette and Disney Films. He's also worked with the Australian Federal Police, and he works with businesses and individuals to help understand what makes people tick. And I think that today uh, we live in an age where it's one op- one option is to sit back and lament the fact that we don't understand even our family members sometimes in the way that they think and what they're doing, or we can get up off our asses and we can figure out what makes other people do the things they do and what motivates them. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Hirsch. It's great to be here. So how do you get into the profession of profiling and understanding people? I don't know how other people have done it, but I've done it in a very uh, roundabout way, mainly because uh, I was originally dreadful at reading people. I've been through two divorces. I've been through a lot of broken relationships. I've had uh, business partners who've emptied the bank out, and it was just a matter of necessity. I thought, if I've got to improve my life, I need to read people better. It all started in uh, 1975. I'd um, been put in charge of a group of men who were all older than me. I was 23 and my second in charge was 38. So I had to start getting them on side. And I worked with um, uh, body language in those days because that was pretty much the flavor of the month, the thing that everyone was talking about. In the 80s, I got into psychometric profiling where you ask people questions and work their personalities out from there. And in the uh, 90s, I got involved with neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. And then uh, in the 2000s, working with a... uh, a a group that uh, taught currency trading and none of their students made any money, I needed a better way of reading people. So I started looking around and after my second divorce, I was introduced to a group that uh, they asked me one day, I'd ever read faces and that got me interested. And that's where it all started for me in the early 2000s, looking at uh, reading people's faces through their facial features and their uh, facial expressions. And that's when everything changed for me. So going back, to the early days, when did you first realize, hey, I'm really lousy at reading people? What was the first indication to you? Well, it was mainly uh, after my second divorce. Everything else was trying to just improve the relationships I was having, but there was no real pressure or any uh, great drive to uh, spend a lot of time in that area. But uh, after my second divorce, I I just looked at my life and I went, things have got to change. You know, I've done all this other previous learning, but nothing's worked. And just that chance throwaway line from somebody just saying to me, have I ever read faces? That put me on a completely new path. What was the first step in really figuring out the methods? Well, it was quite humorous. I came home. I was actually working at a, um, helping them with a spiritual retreat, one of my mates. And 
that was where that person said to me, if you looked at reading faces, because I was doing a, a workshop using Myers-Briggs, you, where um, we set up the role playing with the different dichotomies. And that uh, comment, I just drove home. It took me about an hour to get home from where the retreat was at. And uh, all the way home, I kept thinking about it. And thank you, uh, Google. I got on, did a, a bit of searching, and I found Paul Ekman, who did all the research on the micro-expressions. At the same time, I found a lady, who, uh, Naomi Tickle, who worked with the facial features. And I thought, these are two very interesting uh, techniques. Ended up training with uh, both groups and uh, then realised that nobody had put all of it together. And so taking the four different sciences that I've been working with, put them together into a, a, a human pattern reckon, which has pretty much become an art form. An art form. Well, that's pretty interesting. And so you ended up with a with a new take on all of it, essentially. That's it. <clears throat> it Excuse me. So if you think about it, people who um, work with or psychologists, for instance, they used to have a belief that uh, particular face uh, or bumps on the head, phrenology, would be serial killers. It was all about character. That was debunked over time. But uh, and those, so the psychologists have never really gone back to that. They'd only worked with the facial expressions. And then I looked at it and thought, well, here we have another lady who's working with the facial features and how they point out the, uh, the personality. And personality and character are different. Personality is how you like to think and process, whereas the uh, character is what you're thinking and processing. And so the psychologists weren't looking at the facial features because they were still thinking about phrenology. And then I realised that the people working with the facial features weren't really working with the facial expressions, but they correlate, they support each other. And so by putting the uh, two pro programs together, along with the body language and also how do we use the words that we speak to actually connect with the other person, tuning our transmitter into their receiver, it changes the way in which we communicate with them. We actually connect with them far better. But to find the right words, the facial features tell me how they like to think and process. It tells me how I need to change the way I like to speak and uh, process things to the way that they need to uh, hear it. And so tuning my transmitter into their receiver and then I've got the feedback from the body language and the expressions that tell me, have I read them right? Is there something emotionally going on? And are they telling me the truth? But where people with the facial features, or so, sorry, facial expressions, were only working with lie detection, I was using that more as a truth seeker. If I can understand right. why you're not telling me the truth, I can have a better understanding. And that can just be that, you know, you're feeling guilty about something, you're feeling you know, insecure. It could be that there's emotional issues going on from caused by something else. Well, I use that to try and uncover that so I can have a better connection with that person. You were also looking at it from the point of view of connection, of wanting the yeah. relationships to improve. And your yeah. interplay, That's not right. just saying, okay, I'm behind two-way glass and I'm observing this person and they're lying. That's mm. that's good for, for some purposes, but it doesn't improve interpersonal relations. That's it. As you say, you've got that glass mirror in, or the glass window in front of you. You don't really connect. But when you use this to build a relationship, you engage with the person, you actually step in. And so being able to understand them and where they're coming from it made the facial features, reading those, far more important than the other three areas. The other three I just use as a support. So the facial features tell me how you like to think and process. The words then tell me how to structure that communication so now I can connect with you. And I use the body language and the expressions as a feedback 
as to have I read you right and uh, is there something emotionally going on? Well, now for people who have Asperger's syndrome, for example, where they hmm. don't necessarily read cues uh, accurately, if you want to say, hmm. where they read them differently, is there uh, a means of improving their ability to understand what people mean? Like they might say, oh, this person's hmm. being mean to me, or this person's angry with me, and they're misreading the cues. Could they use these these uh, methodologies that you employ to better understand the people they're talking well, to? Well, where you start is by changing their environment. I've got uh, one mother who, um, what was it now, 11 years ago, I profiled her six-year-old son who has Asperger, and um, the school didn't want him, the after-school care didn't want him anymore because he was you know, pretty hard to handle. I profiled him for her and said, well, this is how you need to change the way that you're speaking with him so that you can connect with him. The report that in those days I used to do a written report, so she took that to the school and gave it to the after-school's care and to the teachers, telling each of them, that if uh, the others were doing it, and if, they, if the teachers didn't do it while the uh, after-care were doing it and it, it failed, it would be on their heads. And she told the after-schools care the same thing about the teachers. And so the end result, they put it in place. A year and a half later, or actually, no, a year later, she got up in the uh, town hall here in Newcastle, Australia, and uh, uh, when I was doing a workshop there and told everybody how it had changed his life. He was now doing presentations in front of the class at the age of seven. A year and a half later, they were able to let the psychologist go. They didn't need him anymore. And with the doctor's approval, reduced his medication instead of increasing it. Now he's 17, going on 18, and she's still doing testimonial videos because it continually changed their life. Because it wasn't teaching them how to read other people. It was changed their environment in the first place. So their condition don't get triggered as quickly. Now, this boy who they said would never amount to anything, at the age of 17, he's an entrepreneur. So he's, you know, he's doing things that other kids who went through the normal system who didn't have his condition aren't doing. So, so how it's all about that, connect with the other person. That, that is amazing. So how did that manifest itself once? I can understand how changing the environment in the educational setting would change things. What happened? How did that manifest itself as he started to mature? Well, by teach, speaking to him in the way that he needed to be spoken to, his, his learning style, how he took information in, et cetera, they realised that one of his traits was that he couldn't sit still. He had a lot of energies. Some people can sit for long periods of time, others can't. So all of his traits were leaning towards somebody who couldn't sit for long periods. In a class, you sit them down. So one of the things that the uh, teacher would notice when he started getting a little bit agitated, well, the very first time when he was very young, she's his teacher at the time had said, look, I need somebody who can do it, do something for me. I just realised there's a question I needed to ask the principal. I need some information and I have to have it now. Who's the fastest person in here? The old kids put their hand up and he did as well. And she said, "Rightio, Jack, I want you to run to the principal and take this note to him. And all the note had on it was in an envelope so he couldn't open it up. The principal opened it. All it was, it was young Jack was getting a little bit um, uh, noisy could he just write something on the note, reseal it and send it back to him, with him? He did that and as he came back in the class, she opened it up, she looked at it and she went, fantastic, oh, that's exactly what I need to know. Now I can concentrate back on the class. Thank you, Jack. Jack sits down. He's not going to upset her because she's just lifted him up. He now feels great because he's been the centre of attention in the classroom. 
So techniques like that change the way in which they spoke to him. So his behaviour automatically changes. It puts him in a situation where he's not going to get triggered as easily because before he's sitting in a room where he can't move and that's causing him frustrations and we expect a child who can't sit still to sit still. We're asking for problems. And then when they move out of that school, uh, let's say he's he's going to university, mm. has has his, ha, I guess it's changed for him because his self-confidence is different. His, That's right. His outlook is now different mm. because he doesn't feel as put upon and as misunderstood. So possibly right. those other safeguards are mm. no longer necessary. Is that the... That's it. Yeah. So he's developed faster because they didn't uh, medicate him to the level they wanted to medicate him. So we medicate the kids to fit into the system. They don't really yeah. have a problem. If we put them in a different environment where they could run around and everything else, we wouldn't even notice it. But we've got them in a situation where they've got to sit and listen. And so we're, we're asking for problems. But if you can then start to change the way in which you connect with them so they don't get triggered as often, you don't need to medicate them to the same level. And with the level of medication, they're going to develop faster. And that's what happened here. So we set the environment first and other things then will flow on. So that leads to an interesting subject, which is the environment in which we find ourselves and the ways in which we're relating to one another. Hmm. Now, all over the world, there's a very heightened, polarized vibe. People are uh, not communicating as well. Hmm. People are becoming very tribal and becoming very hmm. uh, cut off from communication. Are there some methods of adjusting our selves or our situations or how, how do we learn to understand one another better? Well, one of the things I created, I realized that, especially dealing with men in business, a lot of men were telling me that uh, they were frustrated. And I said, well, frustrated with what? And they said, well, look, uh, we thought out, especially baby boomers and um, uh, Gen Xs, they thought their role was to go out and create the uh, income to bring it back and look after the family. So bring the resources in. But then they were told that they were physically and emotionally absent all the time. We can't be in two places at once. In the workplace, with gender equality and with um, the uh, political correctness, men were then worried about saying the wrong uh, thing. And that was causing them frustration because they're always on tender hooks. And so that was leading to anger in, the, in both at home and in the workplace. It was leading to bullying in the workplace and in some cases domestic violence at home as well. And I realised that men needed a safe place where they could sit and talk and have somebody listen to them. Because you don't fix a problem with a bully by beating the bully up. You need to understand and understand why they became the way they are. So I created a group called the Campfire Project where men and women, or men first of all, could come along and tell their stories. I had women in there from day one because I never wanted to be a men's group. And I wanted the men to be able to know that women were listening to them, but also the women hear how men can speak when they felt safe to do so. So by just holding their space and listening to their stories without judgment, without counselling or criticism, the men were opening up. And in that, they started feeling better about themselves. I then brought them into panel discussions, talking about all sorts of issues like masculinity, femininity, pornography, drugs, alcohol, you name it. That was when the women sent me personal messages saying, we love these guys. We've never heard men talk this way before. 
And so they wanted to get involved, which is what I was waiting for. So I brought them into the one-on-ones and then the panel discussions. And we've talked about things like menstruation, menopause, does size matter in the bedroom? The wearing of bras, any subject that they want to talk about, we will talk about. And there is in four years and 500 hours of uh, videoed um, uh, interviews or one-on-ones and panel discussions, no bigotry, no sexism, no racism, and not once have we had anybody disrespectful to anybody else, which has been unheard of on social media. But it's a closed group and people come in there knowing that they have to be respectful. If they're not, they're out very quickly. So by setting the environment is the first thing, but then knowing, letting people know it's safe for them to actually express themselves. So the whole thing is if you want to improve a situation with somebody, it's about you setting up the environment so that they can then open up and talk to you. So even before you learn how to read some of the facial features, the body language or the expressions or anything else, it's first of all realise that when you're trying to communicate with somebody, you want to get your message across, you want to understand them, you want to improve your situation. Well, respect them in that that, uh, that case and set up the environment so they're going to feel comfortable to be able to do so make that connection with you because it's not a, a case of you know, treating other people as you would have them treat uh, them or they, them treat you, I should say. It's a case of uh, treating them as they would have you treat them. It's about your connection with them, not you, being them treating you in a certain way. Yes, with respect, that's fine. But in communication, we have to be and be respectful of them and set the environment up so that we can talk to them in the way that they need to be spoken to. And that changes a lot of problems. Yes. I think that that the safe space concept is, is on the right track. I think what mm. we're lacking is that, that safe two-way communication, that safe mm. understanding that we're not going to, that it's not about us and it's not about our needs. It's about us focusing on the other person's need to express themselves, how they will, just by getting off ourselves, just by getting, it's not so much that we're having a say, it's that we're in a, we're creating an environment together that we're actually building something together with, with all the other people in the group. Mm. So they start out with a group uh, construct that wouldn't mm. exist if it were not for all of them. So they can all have ownership and maybe that makes them all comfortable. That's um, it. Well, if you look at a business, for instance, people are talking, well, how do I get my staff to be more loyal, to be more involved in the business? I know the last Gallup research that came out, they were saying that 87% of people in the workplace, the employees, were disengaged. In uh, 2016, I think it was 66%. That went up by another 21% by 2018. What it is now after COVID is probably worse again. But the end result was that people weren't happy in what they're doing. It's the same as your partner. To be in love with somebody, to feel loved, you need to feel that you've got a place, that you've, you've um, valued, that you contribute. Well, it's no different with your employers in the workplace. If they don't feel that they're valued, that they're not contributing, that they're not being respected in any way, they're not going to want to be there. And that was a problem. We had far too many managers and very few leaders in business because they're all focused on the dollars. Getting the, you know, I spoke to a lot of executives and they were talking, I'd ask them, well, how long have you been in the present position? And they were talking about, oh, I've been here for uh, six quarters. And I went, six quarters? Yeah, a year and a half. Everything was based on the quarter, which was based on the KPRs, the KPIs of the organisation. And so I realised that people weren't being treated 
as people, they're being treated as just a resource. And so not an asset because resources you know, quite often are left out in the rain, but your assets, you value those and they weren't being treated that way because for the catch cry, work on your business and not in your business. Well, you never get a chance to do work on your business if the people in your business aren't working in the business themselves because you're going to be there and monitoring them all the time. You want to be able to walk away, which means your people have got to feel comfortable. So if you look after your staff, you'll actually have a stronger business because they will then look after your clients. So where they talk about putting your clients first, we well, put your clients first by putting your staff first. And it's the same thing here. If you want to have a better life yourself, it's looking at the other people, putting them first, which is actually putting you first as well, because everything's connected. It's all connected through trust, because mm. if trust isn't established, you know, we're, we hear the word transactional a lot, and mm. transactional is another word for impermanence, really, because we're, we're, you know, I'll give you this and you give me that. That works literally mm. in a transaction where you're going into a, a market and buying a soda. It doesn't work when you have to trust someone to run your company for you. So That's it. Going, going back to your early lessons, um, what, what profession were you in before you got into this field? Well, first of all, I was with our national telephone carrier. I started when it used to be the Postmaster General's Department when our telecom and our um, post office were together. And I left them in 1991. And that, in that first stage, that was all about the body language and then also into psychometric profiling, like Myers-Briggs and DISC and programs like that. Then I uh, started my own business in the 90s. And at that point, I'd also became a surf lifesaver. And uh, they gave me everybody, they taught me to be a patrol captain and gave me everybody that nobody else wanted. And so I was a dumping ground and I turned that into the patrol of the year. And then they taught me to be in the club captain and then uh, being the uh, zone supervisor of three beaches. So now the same age as everybody else on the committee, I was now the uh, least experienced, but I was still in charge. So I went from being the youngest in the telecom with the staff I had to uh, being the least experienced in the surf club. And when my first wife left um, in uh, 91, uh, she um, left me with three boys to raise on mine. They were four, 11 and 12. And so now I had that experience of uh, raising them. I was using some of the skills, but I was more focused on the outcome of what I was trying to do, that I wasn't realising, well, what better way could I do things? And as I said, the, uh, the real trigger, because I was running my own businesses in uh, 92, I'd been a antivirus specialist with a program that had been written by one of the people from the Israeli Defence Department that was uh, distributed through another friend of mine who bought the rights for Australia and Asia. I'd been, had a high-speed printing house, a mailing house. I'd been in that many different uh, industries since I left telecom. That I, that's where I got all my experience. Everything was relationships. And that's when I realised that the foundation of everything in life was the relationships that we build. If you don't build a relationship, you've got nothing. If you're running a business, you can have a fantastic product and service, but if you can't build a relationship with people, you'll never get the chance to show them how good it is. Right, because we all the things that you described, the, they're not all connected uh, specifically and linear in a linear fashion, mm -hmm. but they're connected through the backbone of relationships, the, the common ground of, of relationships. So hmm. I have I have 
five kids, I can imagine, only imagine really what it would be like to have to raise the three boys on your own at that time. Um, I likewise was, was divorced once before and have three kids from that marriage, Hmm. but still we were co-parenting after the, Mm -hmm. after the divorce. Um, so what happened, what happened there and how did you relate to the boys and, and how did your, how did your skills come into play? My father died when I was three. So I grew up with my mother and sister and I'd always had to achieve everything and do things on my own. I became a carpenter. I did a whole lot of things. I learned how to uh, wire things up before I'd even really got been taught how to uh, wire um, uh, circuits and things. So it was always learn about something, get out and do it because I had a necessity. When my first wife uh, left, that was pretty much the way I handled it. I thought, well, I've got the three boys, just get on with it. I'd just started a, a business uh, of my own, left telecom. So in that one 18-month period, I'd uh, lost my wife. I'd taken redundancy from telecom. I'd lost my mother who died, who, who passed away, and I'd lost two friends, one who had cancer and one who committed suicide. So it was a pretty involved 18 months. So I went pretty numb. I just got in and just got became very mechanical, just did things as they needed to be done. And that's where I may have missed a little bit of the connection with my sons. But the good thing was that even though my wife had left, she got the boys one night a week and I was raising the rest of the time. They would turn around to me one day when my oldest boy was 18 and he said to me, well, we're pretty lucky to have you. And I went, "What? Where this, where's this coming from? I said, what's this about? He said, well, you and uh, mum don't bag each other and we've got two places we can go to and we're, we're happy in both those places. And I said, well... What about all your friends? You know, they've got all their, you know, they're all living at home with their mothers and fathers. He said, yeah, but half of them, their mothers and fathers are fighting. He said, he said, didn't you notice there's always 15 kids here in the house after school? Because <laughs> was, mine was a local uh, meeting area and I worked from home, so I was always there. And so I went, okay, I realised then that this is where a lot of people who break up go wrong. They're angry at their right. partner. And they complain about their partner. So what they're really telling their kids is that half of their of them is no good. And this is wonder why they, they lose a connection with their children. So the kids then become distant. Well, you know, my ex and I didn't uh, bag each other, so we didn't have that problem. And that's what brought, brought the boys closer to me. So a lot of things that had happened in my life were pretty much, well, what would you say? They were just things that happened. It's like, as they say, you make plans in life, but uh, life will just do what it needs to do around you and you'll end up following a certain path that's got nothing to do with your plans because we are connected to everybody else and things that happen cause us to react in different ways. It was after my second wife left that um, I got back into uh, massage therapy because she was the one who talked me into becoming a massage therapist. She was a um, uh, aromatherapist and she actually taught part of the course. And she got me to go and do the course. After we broke up, I put it on hold. But then a few mates about a year later talked me into getting back into it again. And all of a sudden I had terminally ill patients coming to me and some of them are reversing their conditions. The health store that was sending them to me were working on their tinctures, their medicines that I was giving them. They come to me, I'd take them through an NLP process, talk about the things that were going on in their life then put them on the table and anchor that with aromatherapies and everything else. And some were reversing their conditions, which I had no understanding of. And I needed to find out what it was. And through some chance meetings, met an Aboriginal group who invited me out bush and over a year going out every weekend and learning about culture and understanding about bringing boys into manhood. 
I uh, got invited to go through my own initiation. That was 20 years ago, just before my 50th birthday. And so I went through that initial tribal um, uh, initiation to uh, go from boyhood to manhood. And that's where a lot of my learnings then consolidated. And it was at that point that I thought, started realising that I had to start doing things differently. And if it hadn't been for that uh, second divorce, that never would have happened. So a lot of things that happened in my past, I past, in my past, I regret. But I'm you know, looking at who I am today. I'm quite happy that they happened, because I wouldn't be where I am today doing the things that I'm doing. Also, you have this knack for opening yourself up to receiving information mm. and signs and culture and growth. You're you're clearly very open to it, and that. That might be where your fascination with reading, reading mm. individuals, profiling comes from because you're receptive to it. You're not putting anything on it. Um, when it came to the, the massage therapy and the holistic treatment, you know, that you that a lot of your, your clients were getting, did the other skill set play into it? Like, could you look at their physical mm. bearing and draw some conclusion about their physical well-being? No, that was until another um, uh, eight or nine or ten, uh, eight or nine years later that that really uh, came into play, because it was uh, through working with um, the uh, the company that got me to come in and do the uh, training, where I knew that I needed a better system than just asking people questions about their to work out their personality. Those systems are, are, are necessary. If you're employing uh, somebody and you put a, a job application up on the uh, uh, computer and the internet and people start applying, if you get a 1,000 people applying for a job, then you don't want to face profile of them. You've got to bring the list down. So having questionnaires where you work people's personalities to a, a degree work quite well. They all have that, those systems have their place. But I realised that... When you uh, profile people, you've got things like education, uh, their gender, their religion, their uh, culture, their educational background, et cetera, their understanding of words will determine how they answer a questionnaire. And then there's also their emotions on the day. It's also then people say, but I look at somebody and I'll watch them and see their behaviour and I'll work that out. But if that person is doing the assessment on that day is having a good day or a bad day, they're going to get a different result because the way we read people. So I realised I needed something that took all of that out, and that's why the face, reading the facial features became so important, because your facial features don't change overnight. And so that's where that reading came in. So with the, um, uh, the those questionnaires, yes, you bring your numbers down, but when you bring them in for an interview, that's when you then start reading their face and working them out from that point. So can you... Give me an example of some of the things that you read in a person's face. Well, if I may, when I'm looking at you, I know that you put uh, dramatic flair into the things that you do with your natural expression. I also know there's a bit of design appreciation there as well. So you'd be able to look at something and the designing something would be uh, quite easy for you. I know there's a dry wit there as well. So in a conversation, I don't have to be too worried about being politically correct because anything I throw at you, you can throw back at me as well. But I know when you've analysed things and you've worked out the, um, uh, you've made a decision, it'll just be give me the best way to do it and get out of the way and let me get it done. You're not going to waste time. Somebody, that's what I call physical motive. 
other people like myself who have got a little bit more of the, the uh, mental motive, we want to look at all the different ways in which things happen. So we want to work that out. You don't want to go through that. You just want someone like me to work that out, give you the best way so you can go and get it done. And this is what I can see in the face. This comes from all the facial uh, uh, features. If you think about it, because a lot of people, psychologists, when I first started talking to them, they thought, this is clairvoyance, you know, this is a bit woo-woo, new age stuff. Yeah. And I went, no, it's based on science. If you lift weights, you're going to build muscles in your body. So if you do bicep curls, you're going to build your biceps. If you don't do bicep, tricep extensions, they're not going to grow. So you can look at somebody and work out what sort of exercises they do. I've got very skinny legs compared to my chest. When I was in the 50s, when I was, before I turned 50 in the surf club, I was a rower, but I was rowing skis. I wasn't rowing the big surf, heavy surf boats. You look at the guys who row those, they've got big hip solid legs as well because they've got to lift the boats up and carry them. Whereas on a ski, it's all upper body. So I had a broad chest, but uh, even my wetsuit was a size three up above and I was wearing size two on the, on the bottoms simply because of the difference in uh, the proportional size. So when you think about that and you're lifting weights, you're going to develop muscles at the same time. Everything we feel inside we express outwardly. This is why the body language and, and facial expressions work. So you put those together while you're sitting and concentrating, you're going to pull expressions while you're working. You pull the same expression over and over, you're going to develop ridges and crevices on your face that give away your personality. But your personality is made up from two areas. It's made up from nature and nurture. Stuff that's passed down in the DNA from your parents, that's the nature. So that's the basis that we start with. But then depending on our environment, and how we respond to that then depends on the nurture traits that we then start to create. So when I'm doing uh, work, uh, workshops and talking to people, I jokingly say that, look, from zero to 25, you have the face that your parents gave you. From 25 to 50, you got the face you give yourself because it's all nature to start with. And then we start developing the nurture side of it. And if I'm really cheeky when I'm talking to people, I'll say, and after the age of 50, be careful because you'll have the face you deserve. Because you keep, <laughs> you yeah. think about it, if you frown a lot, the corner of the mouth is going to turn down. If you've got a very you know, unhappy life, you're not going to get the crow's feet up here because you only get those if you're working in the sun and squinting really hard all the time or you're really enjoying things because when you're really happy, the orbital muscles around the, the eyes go really tight and you cause these little crow's feet. And if any women who are listening to this at the moment, whenever I give a presentation, I always say to the uh, mature women that they talk about beauty being only skin deep, but those lines up here are beauty that go all the way to the bone. This is, you only have those lines if you've been a really happy person. That is true beauty. You see a mature age woman and she's got those lines, I guarantee when she smiles, the whole face lights up. But you can't do that if you have a cosmetic surgery or you've had um, Botox. People can't see that happiness. So yeah. I love being around women who have got those lines because they, I know they're going to be a joy to talk to. So yeah. start off with a certain uh, shape in your face. That will develop as you go older. That will stay fairly solid as far as that part of the personality. But we moderate it with more and more with the, um, the nurture traits as we develop those. And so, yes, you're unhappy. Your mouth is going to turn down, but that trait can be changed. You get away from the people who are bringing you down get the right sort of people around you, stop watching the news, start watching more comedies and you're laughing more, 
It won't take long before the muscles up here become stronger. And as they become stronger, they get tighter and they'll pull the mouth up when you're just resting. And so when you've just got just sitting there, to, you know, with a neutral face, the corner of the mouth will start turning up and straight away your face changes. Your body structure changes, the way you sit and stand. The way people then connect with you will change as well because you're putting out a different energy and we're all picking up everybody's energy. That's why the body language and the expressions on the face, we pick those up, the nonverbal indicators, because there's more truth in the nonverbal indicators than there are in the actual words that we speak. So if we want to start to improve our ability to, to have open dialogue and converse with people, we can start by checking our own facial set and our own habits and try to smile more, try to entertain ourselves more, be entertained, be open to my going to a comedy club may make me a better uh, debate partner with, mm. with, with, with someone who has a different opinion. Because yeah, it will certainly I, make you more I'm, of a pleasure to be around. Yeah, and I think if we can work on that, uh, mm. that's a great place to start. Just being being a little more mm. pleasant to be around. Um, Alan Stevens, thank you, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, oh, you're welcome. Can I just add and, one more thing there, very yes, quickly? Please. Is that over the years I understood that uh, because of my background and what I went through, everybody has suffered or uh, is suffering. So I know that everybody's got things happening in their life. When I became a profiler, I started realising that everybody wears a mask and everybody also uh, pretends they're not wearing a mask. But realising that every, we are the results of all of our experiences, so our, all of our childhood sufferings and rewards, they're the four main things. So once I realised that about people, I realised that everybody's got something going on in their life. And when we talk, that stuff doesn't come out because people have got that mask on and they're pretending it's not there. So we're responding to other people on the behaviour at that moment, which is not the thing that's behind it. If we can take that little bit of time to realise that the person we're talking to has got stuff going on that is not probably giving us the, and telling us exactly what it is, don't judge them on what we're seeing right now. Try and understand where it's coming from. And the moment we take the focus off the response to their behaviour now, we take the pressure off ourselves as well. And then we can relax with them and then we start to understand what's really going on. And once we do that, that's when we make a strong connection with them. And that's when we get their trust and things open right up. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.